Welcome. I'm Julie Davis, president of City Club. Thank you for joining us today for the first City Club event of 2021 and the beginning of our State of the Possible series. As we begin, I want to acknowledge that the land we are on is native land and was stolen from people who lived here for thousands of years. Here in the Portland region, this land is the territory of the Multnomah, Catlamet, and Clackamas, the Tualatin, Kalapuya, and Malala, the Wasco, Cowlitz, and many other indigenous people who have known the power and beauty of the Columbia and Willamette rivers, lived here, raised their families, and built communities and traditions that live on. Together, we recognize their unbreakable connection to this land, and we honor the resilience of their ancestors and the hope of future generations. Wow, how are you all doing out there? Are you just getting by? Or are at least a few of you starting to feel a little better about things? Personally, I've always looked at January as a hopeful month. Sure, it's raining and mostly cold outside, but this time of year, the daylight begins to stretch a little further into the afternoon, and I start thinking about the things I'm going to do in the summer. I know a lot of us are still stuck in the muck and gloom of 2020, but we have reason to be hopeful. Last year changed the world forever. That means we can't go back to the way it used to be. We have to figure out how to make things better. You know, we don't get that chance every year. That's the spirit we're approaching our new State of the Possible series with. We recognize that Oregon's leaders face huge challenges, and we definitely want to hear how they plan to navigate the year ahead. But this moment also demands vision and intention about what we're building because, because the decisions we make now are going to shape our communities for generations to come. These are hard times, but these are exciting times too. I hope you'll help us with your questions and support to challenge our guests to think beyond now and imagine a time of transformation. This afternoon, we're joined by Senate Majority Leader Rob Wagner and House Majority Leader Barbara Smith Warner. We had hoped for a bipartisan conversation and attempted to work with Republican leadership to find a time that fit their schedules, but they ultimately declined to participate. City Club has a long history of convening conversations across party lines and making space for dialogue that clarifies differences and defines common goals. Political parties and their strategists may change over time, but our commitment to open, honest dialogue will always be one of us, one of our highest priorities. Okay, let's get started with today's conversation. If you have a question you'd like to ask about the state of our capital, you can post them to Twitter using the hashtag state of the possible or email us at questions at pdxcityclub.org. 
I want to take a moment to thank our season sponsors, Chevron, The Standard, and Wells Fargo for supporting our State of the Possible series. I'd also like to thank our supporting sponsors, Kaiser Permanente and Tonkin Torp, and our partners at Pamplin Media, X-Ray FM, and Merge Design. If you're ever unable to watch our forums, you can listen in via X-Ray stations, including 91.1 FM and 107.1 FM. Finally, a big thank you goes out to Caitlin Baggett Davis for producing today's event. It's now my pleasure to welcome Dana Haynes, Managing Editor of the Portland Tribune. Dana will be moderating today's conversation. Thank you, Dana. City Club has given us a difficult task today to lift our gaze to the future and to ask, how do we get from here to there? Given the realities of 2020, the pandemic, wildfires, financial hardship, and nationwide focus on racial injustices, it may be more important than ever to define a hopeful future that is worthy of the fight. The City Club has asked us to divide our conversation into two parts. For the first 15 minutes, we'll focus on the 2021 legislative session. But the lion's share of our time today will look at the state of Oregon in the next couple of decades. The future is not written. Leadership will determine the state of our state in the future. <clears throat> I'll want to ask my guests some questions about policy whose impacts lie decades down the road. As a reminder, send your questions to City Club's Twitter account using the hashtag State of the Possible, that's all one word, or email your questions to questions at pdxcityclub.org. Let me also say first that we will hear from many voices today, including likely the voice of my cat, Violet, who will be wending herself around my legs and informing the audience loudly that she has not yet been fed. Uh, to assure the lawmakers, she does not live in your districts and she is not a constituent. Now, let's get be begin with offering both of you a few minutes to represent your general thoughts in the coming session. Representative Smith-Warner, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Thanks so much, Dana. Thank you, Julia, and uh, all of City Club. Um, joining City Club, uh, I've been a member for a couple years, and I never get the opportunity to go in person. So another unexpected uh, benefit of the pandemic and these moving to online has been my ability to catch a lot more of these conversations than I have been able to uh, in the past. So thank you for that. Thank you for your pivot. Um, Boy, state of the possible, what a great premise that is. Um, we, the House Democrats, are we just put out our policy agenda last week and we called it transformation through crisis um, because that is really what we are looking at is, and, and it, I think it goes really well with the whole concept of state of the possible. So we know that we are, we are dealing with the fallout of all sorts of crises, right? Um, the pandemic and all of the the health and uh, and the health and economic and social impacts of that wildfires that have gone through our ongoing reckoning with racial justice, all of those things. So how do we learn from them and use? them as an opportunity to really make meaningful change. Well, that is broadly what the House Democratic Caucus hopes to do. We, a couple things, um, we plan, the most important thing that happens in a legislature and this year more than ever will be the budget. 
um, we have to put out a two-year balanced budget. And in that work, we will have pledged to center the people who are the most impacted by these multiple crises. We learned a lot after the, our responding to our last recession about what not to do, honestly, about how to do pennywise, pound foolish budgeting. And we we are we are being intentional about centering the needs of those most impacted in the work that we are doing going forward. Um, we also have seen the gaps in our healthcare system, um, public health broadly, access, affordability. That is an issue that we will that we will center um, in our work. And the racial justice awakening isn't even isn't even enough. The ongoing racial justice. Uh, desperate need of our community to deal with. I, um, once you, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I, as a, as the leader of the House Democrats, will tell you that we are planning to focus all of our work, again, broadly. What can we do systemically to address disparate racial impacts in everything. Yes, we've done some great work on police accountability and criminal justice reform, and there's more to that to come. And it's beyond that. We have pledged to look through a racial equity lens at all of our policy, all of our systems, our healthcare system, our education, our tax system, all of that. We will continue to focus that. Our, uh, our caucus of black, indigenous and people of color members put out a great legislative agenda uh, in the last week or two as well, full of a broad range of issues that we are eager to support. Um, but that really, I just wanna lay that out as kind of a broad idea that we wanna focus our budget work on the most impacted. We wanna stay focused on um, the racial impact of all that we do. And we're going to do that all in a session that despite what you might think uh, on, the, on, the, on the face of it, is actually gonna be one of the most accessible legislative sessions ever. Every Oregonian will have the opportunity to testify, to engage in bills without ever leaving their home, without having to get childcare, without having to take time off of work. It will truly be one of the most accessible sessions ever. So in a year where uh, we all got sick of the word unprecedented, here we have unprecedented opportunities to, to, to take that, to make it positive and more fully engage more people in the process. And that is what we are excited to do. Thanks, Dana. It's great to see you. And uh, Representative Smith Warner, fantastic. And CM, hello down there. Um, folks may or may not know that uh, with Dana, our time almost overlapped working at Portland Community College. In fact, I think when I came in, there were still warm file folders as he left to go pursue his writing uh, career. But and thank you for City Club for having me as well. I have a fond memory of being a college student at Portland State University and walking down and attending all kinds of forums. And actually a dozen years ago, maybe more, I was a member of the City Club's Civics Advocacy uh, and Education Subcommittee. And boy, does that seem like uh, that kind of work right now in our civic life is needed more than ever. Really proud to partner with Majority Leader Smith Warner as the Majority Leader in the Oregon State Senate. Uh, by this point, I feel like sometimes we're almost finishing each other's sentences. And 
I'm really proud of the fact that for over a decade now, Democrats in the Oregon legislature can point to some big successes meeting Oregonians' fundamental needs. Paid sick leave, our clean fuels program, minimum wage, reproductive health equity, our landmark Student Success Act, juvenile justice reform. But I do believe now, as you heard from Representative Smith Warner, we're facing probably the greatest challenge in the history of the state potentially. And I'm really excited about the opportunity to participate in helping lead Oregon's recovery and building on those successes. So our job this legislative session is to show up. It's to show up for all Oregonians, regardless of your age, your ability, your gender, your identity, your race, your party, or your zip code. COVID-19 is obviously going to be at the forefront. And I do believe that we are feeling that sense of hope, even with the gray skies, the, the lengthening days. But as I just heard last night too, the importance for all of us to stay diligent in following public health best practices right now is critical. With over 400,000 uh, residents of the United States who have passed, I just heard that in the next three weeks, we might lose another 100,000. Um, and as the vaccine gets distributed, it's really important that we continue to follow those guidelines. In terms of the legislature, as we recover, we need to be focusing globally on some really important issues like access to healthcare, and especially through that equity lens that you heard Representative Smith Warner talking about. We need to be looking at opening our schools safely. We need to be working to help our small businesses recover. We need to be partnering with the Biden administration and making sure that that can happen. We need to make sure that our recovery is equitable as we prioritize helping urban and rural Oregon as it witnessed with the wildfires this past year and continuing to focus to lift up marginalized communities at every step. And this is not just a one day, one session, one bill commitment. As you heard from Representative Smith Warner, this is a muscle that Oregonians need to continually exercise to build our public policy and budget framework through an anti-racist lens. It requires all of us to stay diligent. And while we're doing that, we cannot also fail to recognize that there are important issues that we cannot ignore. Climate change cannot be ignored. Oregon has to step into that space and continue to make progress. Public safety, Representative Smith Warner is one of the strongest advocates in partnership for safe storage legislation. Senator in my caucus, especially now we're reminded why, why it's to allow our public buildings to be free from firearms or the threat of violence. And finally, as we came in on January 11th, and we witnessed our new caucus members taking their oaths of office, unlike anything I'd ever seen. It was after December 21st when we saw Trump and the Proud Boys who were abetted by legislators attack the Oregon State Capitol. It was after January 6th where we saw the attack on our Capitol and our, the, the attack on our democracy. And normally when members are coming in and taking their first oath of office, it's a celebration with family. There's cake and flowers and the governor's state of the state. This time it was masked, it was socially distant. But I think it's really important that you see a diverse group of individuals willing to step forward in our citizen legislature, willing to step into this time. 
And it's not all about the Mike Neermans and the Mark Schultz. We have multiple truths that people are bringing to the legislature. So I'm so proud to be able to be the majority leader and support that work. And either of you can take the first swing at this. Should we keep the order? Okay, Senator, you're up. <laughs> I'd be happy to, to, to go. Um, I do think that um, bipartisanship should be a goal, but the issues that we're facing around the morality around some of these questions shouldn't just be slowed or not dealt with because we can't receive bipartisan support. Political scientists will probably look back at this era and, and I don't think it takes anyone who doesn't read a regular periodical to realize that there is a perception uh, Senator, of I believe we've lost partisan divide right now. And I think a lot of that is broken down around the differing notion of what um, the responsibility of Smith the Warner, government while we're working is to meet the essential needs of our Do you want to take a quick swing at I'm hopeful, just like last legislative session, that we will see legislation and budgets move forward that will achieve bipartisan support. When Senator Jackie Winters, in one of her last bills session, was looking at juvenile justice reform, I don't know if the willingness in the current Republicans in that caucus would be interested in stepping forward without her leadership. Um, so I'm not sure that necessarily bipartisanship is the goal. I think the goal is focusing on what is the legislation that is needed for all Oregonians. But I also do believe that we have a responsibility. I spoke about this. Every single one of us, regardless of whether you're driving an 18 hour round trip, or if you're just being able to drive over to the Capitol from the same county, come with the same responsibilities to be able to come together and have civil debate. And I'm truly hopeful that we're gonna be able to do that again this legislative session. Thank you. We're uh, running a little late here on our schedule, so I wanna to go to a new voice in this conversation. Here is a pre-submitted question from Diana Nunez, Executive Director of the Oregon Environmental Council. Thank you for the opportunity to ask a question today. My name is Diana Nunez and I'm the Executive Director of Oregon Environmental Council. Oregon is in crisis on several fronts, health, racial injustice, economic unbalance, and climate change, leading to wildfires, severe weather, and severe droughts. There are solutions to rise to this moment and address all of these in one way or another. What specific policies, specific bills, or specific bill concepts are you committed to seeing through this session to cut pollution, especially for BIPOC communities, while simultaneously improving health, combating climate change, increasing equity, and strengthening our economy? Thank you. Again, given that our time is short, who would like to take a swing at that? Yeah. Great question. I'll just throw out a couple um, short responses. I know that the 100% uh, clean, um, uh, proposal is before the legislature and is a priority. I also uh, have uh, worked as an individual and our caucus has with Verde, who have a number of environmental justice specific proposals, whether it is the ability um, to, um, to provide lower rates on utilities for low-income uh, Oregonians, just like big, big, big businesses and big consumers get a discounted rate. The idea of being able to provide a discounted rate to, to lower uh, income folks as well. There is quite a range, and I would argue... 
you that as much of a priority. Um, again, the, the wildfires have have been our reminder of this is a this is an ongoing crisis that threatens all of our communities. Thank you. And really quickly, I, I, the only thing I'd add is um, making sure that we have the budget to support DEQ and some of those other critical agencies um, that hold polluters accountable for that work, especially as it impacts traditionally marginalized uh, folks in our state. Here's a question for both of you. Um, what are you doing to make sure that Oregonian school children are protected from vaccine preventable diseases? And what is the commitment to making that happen? I mean, if not in a pandemic, when? Yeah, you know, the there was a bill in the 2019 session that got through the House uh, and fell victim to one of the series of Republican walkouts in the Senate um, that would have uh, that would have indeed removed any non-medical exemptions to the vaccine requirements. Uh, I'm with you, Dana. I think if there's ever a time uh, to be able to do this, it is now. That bill has been reintroduced um, and I plan to support it. Um, and I, I just, again, it is part of the whole issue of, 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 of the inability to acknowledge that there is truth and there is not truth, that there's not just different of, differences of opinion. And this is, it kind of plays into that underlying conflict that, that is another part of the last year's crisis of the inability to acknowledge that there are truth and there are lies and you have to call out both of them. And unity is important as long as you can acknowledge the difference between those two. Senator? As the only Democratic chief co-sponsor in the Senate on House Bill 3063. This was priority legislation for me in 2019. I was extremely disappointed to see it fail. I just have to underscore what Representative Smith Warner said. We have to have the courage to take on sort of that loud conspiracy voice. Uh, they're very organized. We have to acknowledge that. We get peppered, our, our staff gets peppered. But when you see people coming in and testifying on bills, threatening legislators, saying that they're going to spit on them, uh, having to have state police walk you from committee to your um, to your office and seeing people while I was trying to pass the Holocaust Education uh, Act, you know, talking about uh, the equivalency of the Holocaust in terms of childhood vaccination prevention. It's abhorrent. The tactics are abhorrent, but we have to have courage in the face of that. We need to deliver on that legislation, whether or not it's this session. Um, it's something that Oregon absolutely needs to do. And finally, if you actually look at the polling on this, even though it's a very loud subsection of sort of conspiracy folks, um, the overnight, I just saw the polling on this, over 90% of Oregonians uh, believe that this is still the right thing to do. Is to, And if you look at the data, over 90% of almost every school district has, has their kids meeting their vaccine schedules before they're um, walking into school on a regular basis. We're going to take a quick break here and recognize the season sponsors and supporters of this City Club program. When we return, our conversation will move from this session to a broader look at Oregon's future. All right, um, we're going to start this next segment with a pre-recorded question from Econ Northwest. Hello, my name is Lorelai Gentinen. I am a partner at Echo Northwest, a public policy research firm based here in Portland. Thank you very much for taking my question. Uh, my question is on the topic of housing. I have been working with Oregon Housing and Community Services on a statewide study of housing need 
And we have found that in order to meet housing need, we would need to increase production from a total of about 20,000 units per year on average to a total of about 30 to 40,000 units per year on average. And that as much as 40% of that total need would be to serve households who earn below 50% of median family income. So my question for you is, do you have ideas about how you will build on the successes of House Bill 2001 and 2003 from the 2019 legislative session to meet that need, especially given that such a large portion of it is at the lower end of the income spectrum? Thank you very much. It is entirely self-serving to tell you that we have a story on page A1 regarding this very topic appearing in Wednesday's print edition of the Tribune of our two lawmakers on this uh, call. Who wants to go first? I'll start, uh, if you don't mind, Rob. I just, I mostly want to call out, um, I, I, I do want to thank you for the acknowledgement of House Bill 2001 and the significant um, work that was done by the legislature on that. Um, I also want to point out, um, as, as was mentioned, there is a huge need for lower income housing. And part of that uh, is to deal with our, our crisis of folks experiencing houselessness. Um, Project Turnkey, which people may have heard, um, you know, kind of a little bit about, I want to call out that as, as something that has already started. And that's the kind of idea that we need to look for as we are, are seeking ways to expand um, and, and, and promote more housing opportunities. Project Turnkey is, uh, was, was passed through the emergency board um, last year. And what it does is it takes uh, hotels and motels, which are for sale or, or potentially for sale and being less profitable, and uses state resources, state and county resources and private donations to purchase them and then repurpose them as housing stock for, uh, and it can be used for a variety of reasons. It can be used as temporary shelter. It can be used as permanent um, supportive or non-supportive housing for uh, lower income folks. It's really quite brilliant because what it does is takes resources that are already one of the ways that many communities deal with trying to house their um, their folks experiencing houselessness is giving hotel vouchers. Well, the idea, it's just such, again, it's such a better long-term investment to purchase these buildings that are already structured. They have they have um, bedrooms, they have bathrooms, they often have laundry facilities, they often have central, you know, central uh, locations. This is the, that project turnkey and expanding that, I think is a really critical, I'm excited that we did a little of it um, during from the e-board, but I think that's the kind of, um, that's the kind of work that we need to keep doing to, to kind of bring, because we got plenty of housing coming in at the top end, we need to do more to promote, um, housing for, for lower income Oregonians. Senator, do you want to address that one as well? Yeah, just really quickly. I appreciate the work that Eco Northwest has done. I've seen presentations by Lorelei and I think John Tapania on this as well and had an opportunity to review some of their work. Um, the, the Metro uh, regional bond measure or regional measure this last year, um, I think was an incredible step uh, to address uh, regional housing supply. I know that it's going to take a while to ramp that up. We need a sustained commitment from our state government to 
continue to provide additional um, housing at all levels. I think the work that's happening at the county level uh, and the city level here locally around the joint office on looking at addiction and mental health and the, the different factors that go into the need for emergency assistance and the long-term chronic homelessness issue, I think is really important. Um, ultimately, I haven't heard of huge solution in terms of folks wanting to step into that space as it requires the billions of dollars of public investment. I'm hoping that the federal government will be a much better partner than what we've seen out of the last couple decades, but I'm encouraged by the steps that Oregonians regionally are taking to both increase housing supply as well as, well as provide emergency assistance and wraparound supports to those who are in the most need. Um, I want to remind listeners that for this next portion of the show, we're going to be focusing on Oregon in the next few decades. Um, reports from the Oregon Global Warming Commission have consistently shown that we are moving further away from rather than toward meeting our climate goals. What would have to happen right now this year to put us where we need to be in 2040? Senator, you want to kick that one off? Well, I, I think that Barbara and I can both talk about what it was like to be standing on the floor of our respective legislative chambers when people were walking off the job, going to other states and deciding not to show up to work and still get paid while we were trying to debate and negotiate um, our clean energy jobs legislation. Um, it's been exceedingly frustrating. Um, I will just say, I'm sorry to bring the emotion in or having to go look uh, historically. In terms of the metrics, I think there are probably folks who are much more skilled at identifying exactly the amount of carbon reduction that is gonna be needed. My understanding is that Oregon is not bending the curve as quickly as we need to be, nor is the United States or um, what's happening in the world. I think having the Biden administration come in and rejoin the Paris Climate Accord is, is critical. But as I said at the intro, we have to be doing more, we have to be doing our part. So the 100% clean uh, legislation that's coming forward, it's being introduced on both sides um, is, a, is a great step that's gonna put us on um, a much more solid footing going forward. And I don't know if Barbara has additional specifics that she might wanna bring in. Representative? I do not, I do wanna say mostly that um, I do not have specifics, but I do know I have uh, I have been briefed on the governor's executive that she passed uh, after at the end of the 2020 short session. Um, and that is a multi-agency across departments effort. And I know that there are elements, numerous elements of that that are going to um, that are that are going to have the ability to do that. And we still are going to need, you know, in order to kind of buy into any sort of regional work on uh, cap and invest, um, whatever it is, a market-driven solution like that, that has been proven to work. I'd like to remind people the whole concept of cap and invest came out of our successful work in the 70s and 80s about holes in the ozone layer, right? It was a market-driven solution proposed by business um, that would that would both that, that both successfully achieved an environmental goal and also created resources in order, you know, in order to, to make that happen. So that still that is something that cannot happen. Um, just through the governor's uh, executive order. So that is a, a, another element that if we are to be successful in that, um, it is going to need more work. 
On that same topic, people living in the timber counties are feeling hard done by, and sometimes they feel like they're not listened to. That's not going to improve in the next 20 years. What plans need to be made for equitable distribution of both policy benefits and tax burden on those counties? Representative, you want to kick us off on that one? Sure. I would say um, I, I want to start with, um, again, uh, it's it's an interesting transition because so much of the Capital Invest work was designed to create, to be able to generate resources that then could be distributed to those communities that are most impacted. And those are the communities that are the most impacted. It's our frontier counties out in Eastern Oregon that are having the results of years and years of drought. It is our our, our timber counties where the transition in, in the forests from, you know, from, from wet side timber to the kind of wildfires that we saw last year this is exactly the, the frustration in the in the messaging that um, that Republicans have done about these programs is it is this false dichotomy that this is a rural versus urban thing when it truly is not. This is an attempt to um, to to help and support all of our communities and to provide resources for them. So again, it is it, it is that frustration that. There is um, there is that there is so much um, so many so many of the policies that we put forth are specifically geared towards those communities. Yet um, there is no acknowledgement of that truth. Senator, do you feel like you want to uh, step in on that one? Yeah, step in on it. I mean, that's definitely um, the urban rural divide is something that. Um, folks have been talking about in Oregon and probably all the Western states forever. Um, I do a little bit of my fair share of reading of Oregon history and was reminding some of my colleagues that back a hundred years ago during the last global pandemic, there were three democratic state senators and all of them were from rural uh, Oregon and that the Republicans held every seat in Multnomah County and down through the Valley. There obviously been a little bit of a partisan realignment since then. When you mentioned Dana taxes, I do think it's important to note that because of the nature of personal income tax, um, a lot of the benefit goes to support local communities, um, whether or not that's our education or our healthcare delivery system, that is tax money that's generated in the Valley that goes out to support rural communities. Um, there's sort of this, what is the next step regarding um, the timber wars, uh, not to plug a different media source, but I've really found the OPB series on timber wars fascinating to go back and actually revisit uh, through the 1980s and up through today. It's not a simple solution. I do believe like Representative Smith Warner said, it takes people sitting down uh, with a common set of facts and trying to negotiate and figure out how to move forward together. Um, there's some hard truth out there, I think, as it re relates to a global economy around timber. Um, I think one thing that we can absolutely demonstrate that we have to do, especially following our wildfire season, is that the legislature needs to make a sustained commitment to be able to invest in rural jobs in the woods. Uh, I think that it's a win-win it's a in terms of the benefit to um, local economies, as well as to what we're trying to do to um, combat future uh, catastrophic wildfire as well. 
We've been in my newsroom, we've been looking at both your agendas and the agenda of the caucus of black indigenous and people of color called the BIPOC caucus. Everybody has a lot of things they'd like to accomplish. This is a tough question. What one thing addressed now in this session would have the largest impact on Oregonians of color by the year 2040? Senator, take that one. Yeah, you know, the, I, I was so impressed and you, you can find this or put it in the chat or link to it on Twitter or whatever. You can tell I'm, you know, generationally challenged here. But the, uh, the BIPOC caucus agenda that was released uh, a couple of weeks ago um, it has a comprehensive slate, 10 different policy areas and 50 different bills. And I think it's difficult to point to one piece and say, well, 400 years of uh, oppression, we're going to figure out what's the one bill. I think it, it is sustained work in every facet of state, local, federal government, and a partnership with our business community to think about how we do business differently. It's not just enough to put Black Lives Matter as a bumper sticker or a lawn sign in your yard. Um, we have to have folks that are making all of our policy decisions through that anti-racist equity lens. Um, this upcoming legislative session, the governor's Racial Justice Council, which I think needs to be continued throughout, um, is bringing forward some proposals around economic development. I am a proud member on that subcommittee, and I look forward to seeing what those additional investments might be. I think that's one place to start. Um, I know in the criminal justice space and also in the education space, there's legislation that needs consideration this session as well. A representative? Yeah, I agree with it. It's hard to pick just one. Um, but as somebody who's been on the Revenue Committee for a long time, in for most of my time in the legislature, I would say that the uh, the disconnect from um, the CARES Act and that uh, taking away that 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 kind of additional high end tax cut and broadly um, continuing to acknowledge the income disparities and working to make our revenue system um, more more balanced. Um, this has been a, a, a recession that has hit uh, lower income people hugely and middle and upper income people not so much. Um, my staff, one of my staff sent me a thing the other day saying there have been 56 new billionaires uh, since since the beginning of the pandemic. That's that's gross. That's horrifying, um, and 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 yet that means that there are still a ton of resources that we need to be able to bring into this state and to the national government, and that ultimately having those revenue sources is going to allow us to um, is going to is going to I would argue help um, help all Oregonians, our our BIPOC uh, Oregonians as well as everybody, because the more equitable our tax system can be the more resources there will be for the people who need it. And we will be able to, to center the folks who have been the most impacted in the work that we do. Yeah, hey, quick plug, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, just one thing. And I, I think it's important that as we do this work, we also look at an individual level and we start by, by panning the room. And so we look at who's having this conversation right now around what are the things that we can do. And so I, I both believe in allyship that we as you know, privileged white um, individuals need to be engaged in this conversation and it shouldn't be about tokenizing our communities of color, but we need to do the deep work of leaning in and asking communities of color what they need 
you know, so I, I don't think, I don't think it's enough for us just to say, you know, we're going to sit and make that sort of determination. We absolutely need to be open and need to be moving forward, but it requires, as I said, all of us working together to make that happen. Uh, if people want to know more about the governor's uh, racial justice council, we have an opinion column by Marcus Mundy in this Wednesday's uh, Tribune. He explains it quite well. It's a pretty, uh, pretty expansive project. Let me change topics a bit here. Uh, epidemiologists have a mantra. Don't spend your time worrying about the current crisis. Worry about the next crisis. What lessons have we learned in 2020 and this month that will improve the state's reactions to the next pandemic and the one after that? and the one after that. So I will actually, while I'm not sure this is a complete connection, let me use this opportunity to, to mention something that I, again, that I've been thinking a lot about we as a state, right? That really a lot of our ability to respond is based on our, on our underlying systems, right? And our data systems, and our uh, and our you know, and and how well our agencies work. Um, and I think that whether it is you know confusion, acknowledging that the federal government has been a terrible partner in this uh, in 2020, and that there are grand you know that we all hope for a huge improvement in that with the Biden administration. Um, whether it is the, the rollout of vaccines, uh, contact tracing, problems with the employment department, so much of the, the kind of our, our sticking points in our response had to do with systems right with how our agencies like how their how up to date their databases are whether you know our ability our ability to manage that we as a state um unfortunately have had a lot of trouble for a place that is so you know rightfully praised as you know whether it's the silicon forest or all the app development that we have in portland technologically we have that is a shortfall in how our government and our agencies work. And to me, and that is something that I, you know, think and, and kind of worry about a lot. And unfortunately, I don't have a solution. Um, but, you know, paying attention to the problem is half the battle. And to me, that was the other, that was, that was a big, like, in order to deal with this stuff in the future, we need to now when we are once we get into a place of not immediate crisis we need to look across the board at our systems and our databases and our structures in our state agencies and how and that's not sexy um but as we have seen that's the kind of structural stuff that if it's not working well it can really hamper our ability to respond and dana really quickly i I think it's difficult. I think there's a little bit of two things. One is a mindset approach around public health. And when you're talking about, uh, as Representative Smith Warner just said, these long-term issues and sustaining, it's, it feels like you're sort of lifeguarding um, you know, the beach where you're looking out, not necessarily sure that anyone's ever really gonna go under, but you still have to have the important work where people are trained and you're ready to ready to act when something happens. The virus didn't stop at the state border. Uh, I want to applaud the governor for um, 
having some real courage on addressing um, what she did around mask orders. And uh, if you look at the, the data, we really did do one of the best jobs and continue, as I said, the se next several weeks are still critical, critical times for people to be following public health best practices. But ultimately our nation, if you look at Korea and you look at some of the other countries in terms of how they responded, um, West Africa um, uh, was showing, West African countries were showing how they could follow public health best practices a lot better than uh, what we saw in our country. So I, I think that there's work that we can do at the state, absolutely. We need to escalate this at the federal level, and then we need to make those critical investments over the long term. Let me change topics here for a second. Is homelessness solvable? Is it intractable? And if not, what should you, the legislature, be doing now to turn the curve on homelessness in the next 10, 20 years? I'd be happy to. I was going to say, if we're it. taking turns leading, starting, then it's your turn. Okay, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll go and then you can come in over the top when I get it all wrong, Barbara. Um, so I, I think that that there are issues. The nature of the question uh, is disheartening to me. Um, it, it honestly is because I think that as a moral issue, everyone has a right to health and having a roof over their heads and access to equitable education. A century ago, uh, the vast majority of the adult population didn't even attend secondary school. If you look at literacy rates from a century ago, you know, we really made sustained investments in our public schools to be able to bend that curve. Um, I think that it requires an incredible commitment at every level uh, in pr private and public sector and for folks to think differently about what it what does it mean on a moral level to be able to accept that people don't have access to a safe, warm place to sleep every single night. Um, so so I, I, on the first part of the question, I, I would say it absolutely is our responsibility. Everyone in our communities, you see that, um, I hear it at every town hall. Um, I, I just think it's extremely complicated as well, um, given our current structures. Representative? Yeah, I was, I would, uh, just going right along with that, Rob, is, you know, this we I get a lot of calls and emails from constituents and there is someone camping in their neighborhood or on their street and and they want you to fix it um and except that by fix it they mean they want that person not to be there anymore that doesn't fix anything um it's the reality of how many facets there are and i it's it is it is the person who is experiencing it are they um speaking of echo northwest they did a great uh report i think it was last year you know time is fluid in the now so i can't really remember exactly when it was but they did a great report on like the differential between um chronically homeless and 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 not um and how they had different needs but I would just say that broadly, what we need to acknowledge is there is not one way to fix it. Moving that person isn't gonna fix it. We need to deal with the housing. Um, and I wanna go back again to the project turnkey. That's a huge um, important element in having space to, to you know, put, to provide to people. Um, but we also, we are going to need to deal with um, uh, addiction and mental health um, support 
supports. Um, give people the, the support to deal with their addiction issues, to deal with their mental health issues. Acknowledge that for a chunk of folks, they're always going to need supportive housing. But for another chunk of folks, they do indeed, they need more and better job training, right? Um, whatever it is, there it's, it's to understand that it is a broad spectrum. And I, I agree with Rob, I sure hope from a moral basis that we never decide that that's just how it's going to be. And we need to acknowledge that there's not one thing we can do to fix it. Um, and I want to give some props to Mayor Wheeler, who has continued to 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 work on this, moving it forward, that the joint office between the city and the county, that that is the thing is you can't, there's not one thing you can do to fix it. It's a whole range of things from housing to addiction to all, all of those supports. So, and as a state, I would say most of what we can do is to provide some structural support on the housing and on, um, on uh, addiction and uh, mental health supports. We're going to move now towards audience questions. If you have a question for the lawmakers, you can tweet it at the City Club using the hashtag State of the Possible, all one word, or email your questions to questions at pdxcityclub.org. And our first question has been pre-recorded. Here it is. Hi everyone, my name is Samantha and I'm the co-executive director for policy at Oregon Student Voice. OSV is a statewide student-led nonprofit that aims to empower students in education decision-making. Virtually every education policy impacts students, so it is crucial that we are represented every step of the way, from drafting, to editing, to finalizing, to lobbying. Given this, my question for you is what are you doing to make sure that students are engaged in the legislative decision-making process? That's a really good question. Uh, Representative, you want to kick us off? Well, I got I have to defer to I was just going to say that has Rob Wagner written all over it. Rob is part of the Oregon Student Association Mafia, as I refer to it, that <laughs> an enormous number of current legislators of both parties come out uh, with a, with the great history of the Oregon Student Association. So, Rob, take it away. Well, I appreciate it. The so I have four teenagers, and I know Barbara shares a couple around her kitchen table every night too. So if you don't think that students have strong points of view as well as really good ideas for how to govern uh, the state and our federal government just you know we'll, we'll have you on a zoom call some night and, you know bring you in um it starts with policymakers being really intentional about making sure there is student voice at the table um, i had an opportunity to serve as the chair of our local school board and one thing that i did and i ran on this was making sure that there were student representatives um, from each of our high schools on the board who sat with uh, lawmakers and had an equal voice. Now, they didn't have, since they weren't democratically elected, they didn't have a voting voice, but boy, were they listened to. Um, another thing is, when I was at Portland Community College, probably the most proud thing I ever did was start the legislative internship program and provided opportunities for students who traditionally didn't have the access to the corridors of power didn't have the resources. So, so we actually set up a program where um, both through philanthropy um, and through some college funding, a cohort of students was able to get college credit and to be able to provide a little bit of a stipend so they could get to and from the Capitol 
um, and be able to be part of the process. And I think we have to be actively engaged to reach out to students from all backgrounds. It can't just be students who have access because they have time or they have privilege. I think we need to be really engaged. And I've seen it where interns of mine are now going on to do absolutely incredible things. And so, um, so I, I definitely support that. And I think there's so much more we need to be doing at all levels. Let me keep oh. Yeah, oh, my former yeah. colleague, uh, Representative Akasha Lawrence Spence, who served in 2020, she did amazing, she did an amazing youth outreach and engagement program that we have asked her to help us um, kind of amplify and spread throughout the, the House Dems. So I look forward to, to utilizing um, a lot of the work that she did in that and helping more of our members to engage students more directly. We're going to stay with this theme because our next question is from another high school student, uh, Samantha Block. Samantha says the legislature is required to propose redistricting based on the 2020 census data. Her questions are, will lawmakers consider passing legislation to reform the redistricting process? Will it be possible to host public hearings about the redistricting? How transparent will the process be? And do you expect the legislative, legislative plan to be approved or will it go to the Secretary of State? Representative, you want to try that one? Sure. Um, sorry, I, I, I missed a little bit at the beginning. Um, one of my teen, one of said teenagers was coming up and seeking food, uh, as they do. Um, so I, um, so broadly, I would say that I think that you can look forward to the same kind of very public, very accessible, very engaged process that we've done for redistricting in this state. Um, the la you know, as long as I've been around, the last last three or four times. Um, we indeed will will still have a series of public hearings. Um, also, we are really centering um, the Black, Indigenous, and People of Color community organizations in the work. There is kind of a, a, a group of organizations that have, you know, that have kind of self-organized uh, um, and reached out to the legislature in, in their involvement. And that is really critical uh, to make sure that they are uh, involved, much like um, a quick shout out. Um, I'm the chair of the House Rules Committee, as Rob is the chair of the Senate Rules, where campaign finance reform work um, will be getting done this year. And I was just reading the City Club report about that the other day, and that is the first um, the, the first priority in their recommendations is to make sure that the Black, Indigenous, and People of Color communities, the BIPOC communities are engaged and follow their leadership really. So on redistricting, I would say that is gonna be a priority. There will be broad uh, public engagement. And um, I straight up do not know if we are going to get the data in time to be able to do it. We are gonna start now doing, we've got a redistricting committee in both chambers, um, but we know that we are at least two months behind in the dates that it is normally done. And the legislature has a constitutional deadline of July 15th, I believe it is, to do the redistricting by. And we are looking at being unlikely to get the data more than maybe a few weeks before that, but maybe not there at all. So indeed, it may end up getting going to the Secretary of State's office just uh, as a function of the data not being here. Senator, we're running really short on time. Do you want to? Yeah, uh, no, that's, this I don't really have too much more to answer. Just that, you know, the Trump administration really did hamstring us in terms of being able to provide census data in a really timely way 
but we are going to do everything we can through the legislative process to be hearing as many voices as we possibly can, and especially looking at communities of interest. So I just want to underscore um, Representative Smith Warner's commitment to that on the Senate side. I really want to thank our high school student, uh, Samantha Block, for that question. It was a great question. Audience, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Senator Rob Wagner of Lake Oswego, Representative Barbara Smith Warner of Portland. Uh, my father taught U.S. history at the high school level for 30 years, and I speak for myself, for my newspaper, and for the Pamplin Media Group when I say we are grateful for everyone of every political stripe who steps up to serve in elected office. And so to our guests especially, thank you. And thank you to the City Club of Portland for the opportunity to participate in this series of events. The City Club's State of Series will focus on the economy, the education, the region, Multnomah County, the City of Portland, elections, and so much more. You can find the entire slate of events at pdxcityclub.org. The Pamplin Media Group will be here for all of these events. I'm Dana Haynes for the Portland Tribune. Thank you for being here, and have a great day. Mm -hmm.